Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we explore the world of sustainable eating. From responsibly sourced tuna to one of London's most exciting plant-based restaurants, we meet the trailblazers of the environmentally conscious food industry. Restaurateur and ecological campaigner Malcolm Wood tells us about the ethos at his fine dining spot, the Aubrey. I sit back and then I look at my business and go, okay, what, what am I capable of changing? Because I now have that information, I need to start making the appropriate steps. Also in the programme, Monocle's Gregory Scruggs meets with the team at St. Jude Tuna in Seattle. When something presents itself like St. Jude Tuna, it's, it's pretty much a, a home run for me because there's very little work that I have to do. I just get this wonderful product in and try not to mess it up. Plus, Monica Lillis heads to one of London's most recognisable plant-based restaurants, Mildred's. All that here on The Menu on Monocle Radio. Malcolm Wood is a restaurateur, an adventurer, social entrepreneur and ecological campaigner. He has founded over 40 restaurants worldwide, but his project The Aubrey, which has outposts in both London and Hong Kong, constantly looks to challenge the ideas of sustainability within the fine dining space. I sat down with Malcolm in the studio to find out more about The Aubrey and his personal passion for the environment. I started by asking him how can a restaurant be successfully sustainable? It's a really interesting question because I don't think it can be truly sustainable. You know, I, I was asked in a, in a big magazine interview about whether or not we can live in a zero-waste society. And they asked two prominent figures in Asia, myself and someone else. And the, the other person said yes. So her page was, yes, we can. And mine, for someone who does a lot around sustainability, I, I should have said yes, but I said no. It, I don't think it's possible. But what I do think is possible is to reduce the impact to work out different ways uh, to look after our environment. And we've got to be honest about being human. Being human is to consume. We consume food. We're taking from the land. But as we take, we need to replace. As we pollute, we need to, to solve problems. And so if you look at it in that kind of lens, it's, it's more practical. So that's kind of how I approach it. It's interesting that in some descriptions of what you are doing at the Aubrey here in London, uh, there is this characterization of the sustainability approach as being quite radical or even controversial. Why is that? How is that a radical approach? And what does it consist of? Well, so th there's a couple of basic rules that I, you know, like I, I, I love nature. So my, my drive for sustainability comes from my love of nature and I used to do a lot of fishing so I've taken from the land I've gone up mountains and I appreciate our surroundings so I want to keep it in as pristine condition as I possibly can if you if you look at it in that lens the rules that you can apply are you don't want to eat anything that is endangered you want to eat things that the frequency of what you eat if, if you like meat but it's bad for the environment and you're a restaurateur, and if you take meat off your menu and you take bluefin tuna off your menu, you've taken two of your high-revenue items off your menu, you're not going to be able to pay London rents. And so restaurants are in this catch-22 where they want to be low-impact. And unless you go down being a vegetarian restaurant 
and not having anything come in plastic or transportation, you're not going to be zero waste. So it, it's a real problem that we've got to solve, yeah? So the first rule is no endangered items on the menu, locally sourced, nothing traveling from wide distances, low packaging, you know, all the staff are issued uh, metal bottles. We're not allowed plastic bottles. We're developing a, a bunch of plastic alternative products like the bin bags that we use are, are compostable. We've looked at one of the biggest plastic wastes in the back of house, which is cling film. And the, 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 the cling film that we use is also biodegradable and it's, it's one of the first products to be launched in the market. We get our partners to use it as well. So like we've, we've asked the Mandarin Oriental where the Aubrey is based. For, for their other restaurants to start using the same products that we're doing. So th- they're radical in the sense that that we're, we're getting people around us to do that. And we're also sort of taking some of the higher priced items off our menu and trying to get people to order the things that are a bit more sustainable. I think your perspective here is really interesting because you run a business off scale. You know, we're talking about 40 plus restaurants, if if I'm not wrong, around the world. So how easy is it to maintain that approach across all these outlets across the world? Is is it the case that in certain places the situation is more advanced in certain other places less advanced be it because of what is available around you or be it because there is more resistance from the customers or the desire for the experience for it to be something that is different from what you might be trying to propose it's interesting because i've got a brand called mot 32 and it's um it's it's one of the leading luxury chinese restaurant brands in the world and we did the first plant-based menu, and it flopped in Asia. And, and it's not because the Asians don't care about sustainability. They have less access to the information and, and less education and awareness around the issues. But we were persistent. We just we kept it on. It was losing money. We were having these debates. It's like, should we keep going down this road? Should we just revert back? And we, we kept it on, and we slowly took it from Hong Kong to Singapore, then we took it to Las Vegas and, and, and Vancouver, where the where the brand is. And I always say, look, I have a restaurant group. We've got a problem. I'm learning about sustainability today. I've done a couple of environmental films. I partnered with IMAX on a, on a movie called The Last Glaciers. I learned so much about climate change, the real things affecting the environment, and I sit back and then I look at my business and go, okay, what what am I capable of changing? Because I now have that information, I need to start making the appropriate steps. I can't just make those steps today because I will I will make my business go bankrupt. So I've now got to go through an evolutionary process to become sustainable. People will criticize me and say, well, your restaurants aren't sustainable. No, they're not sustainable yet. They're getting there. I care. I've got a platform. I've got an audience of customers that enjoy my product, and if I persist in trying to convince them to eat a plant-based menu in Asia, eventually I'm going to succeed. Because if I get the opportunity every night to educate 500 people that walk through my door. What about the food that's on the menu that really speaks to your heart? You know, when we think about all these issues about sustainability and a plant-based menu, what is delicious on that menu that really kind of makes your heart sing? What is on the menu at the Aubrey that you think, yes, this really marries my philosophy, but also the joy that I have in eating it? The Aubrey in, we've got the Aubrey in the Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong, we, ha- we have it here. 
And, um, you know, I'm here on this trip now um, to, to refresh our menu. What I really like about it is the challenge of finding the local ingredients and working with things that are within the UK and looking at things that are seasonal. And if you if you take that approach, your your menu automatically becomes something that is is more environmentally friendly. You'll see a lot of local ingredients, a lot of fishes and things from from the UK. There's a lot of plant based items. There's salads. There's tofu. And for me, I love sh- I love sharing. Yeah, like I come from an Asian family who just shared, you know, forty dishes uh, every night, and everyone contributed and, and, and cooked a little uh, something. So even our luxury high end restaurants have that kind of sharing mentality around them. So yeah, it's uh, you've just got to go and discover. What's a food from your childhood that you kind of hold dear to your heart, like a dish that kind of comes to your memory, like a ma- like a Proustian Madeleine that is like the food of your heart from your childhood? I, I would say it's a, it's a dish called sui jiao, which is the Taiwanese version of a dumpling. And the reason being is it takes a lot of preparation. And each person's eating like 18 of these things, yeah? And so when you have nine people times 18, you can imagine how many dumplings you've got to make. And so this process started in the morning, you know, they'd get get all the things ready and everyone would be wrapping. And as they were wrapping, they just, everyone's not using, I mean, back in those days, you didn't have phones to use and, and, and all the distractions that we have in, in, in modern times today. But everyone was just focused on talking to each other. And they're just doing something with their hands. So they can't be distracted. And so th- those are kind of like the precious family moments. And it's kind of the process of making food and translating that into a family environment and then and then a family meal. You mentioned that in those family situations, uh, you got told once, uh, you shouldn't just be the person who enjoys going to the restaurant, you should be the person who runs it. What do you love about running a restaurant? <sighs> would, I, would I ask my kids to be restauranters it's a, I, i'm just like that that's <laughs> that's the real kind yeah, of like that's i'm passing the question test, yeah. on it's it's an extremely hard industry it's under a lot of pressure um because restaurants end up being in the press quite a lot um and they're an easy target um for the sustainability and the climate change issue everyone's got to eat every day Yeah, and it's very difficult to change someone's habits. You know, it's it's easier to start with the younger and try to form a whole different set of habits with them than to try to change habits in older people. It's very complicated. It's like a restaurant, you've got to be good at marketing, you've got to be good at financing, you've got to be good at contracts and leasing, you've got to be good at operations, you've got to be good at food and creativity, and you've got to put all those things together. So it... It's a real test of an entrepreneur. So I'd like I've got businesses elsewhere and I'm I'm doing stuff, you know, investments and green solutions and, and, and other things and films. The the restaurant is very it's just it's it's a good challenge. It's a good like you've got you've got to be well rounded at a lot of different things to be successful. And I like that. One more question for you. I've always found it really fascinating to observe restaurants inside hotels and what makes a good one from a not so good one. What do you think is the perfect recipe for a restaurant that does work inside a hotel? Because a number of yours do inhabit spaces inside the Mandarin Oriental or beyond. That's a very good technical question. So what makes it successful is 
a good partnership. A, a, in in kind of what I call like the 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 golden years of hotel restaurants, where there wasn't much options in cities, five star hotels. Like in Hong Kong, there was a period of time where if you wanted a good steak, you go to the Intercon or the Grand Hyatt. Like those were your two options for decades, and and then a whole bunch of celebrity chefs popped up, and they would then put their restaurants into these hotels because they had a name and that would draw more people to that hotel, and they would just set a bunch of recipes and they'd hire some Western chefs and they'd crack on and do it, but there wasn't there wasn't much of a partnership and there wasn't much interaction and the hotel did its best to run those restaurants and that's why. It tends to have a bad reputation today. So when we do a partnership, we do a partnership for the for for the right reason, which is we're not in London. We don't have an HR department. We don't have the ability to hire people. We don't have a marketing team. So we're looking for a partner to work with, and we want to run our restaurant, but we want to be in a community that that has a higher chance of success. And so we we're not doing the same kind of deals that people used to do in the past. We're going in and we're being hands on. Like I I don't know how many times I've flown to London since we've opened the Aubrey, but it's a hell of a lot more than the last ten years. And I think with that approach, you can you've got more legs for having success and having a restaurant that's going to stick around for a while. What's your favorite thing about sitting down in a restaurant, or like, is there a detail about a restaurant that makes you think this works? You know, when you sit down, what the what makes you feel like? This is a success. When I want to go back the next day and eat dinner there, I always say, if I don't sit down in this restaurant and I don't want to eat here three nights a week, it it's not the right food. And there are experiential restaurants and there's chefs that I like, beyond Francine, you know, like I love those foods and there's a place for that type of restaurant and I would go back every six months to that. Those higher end restaurants, they're experiential, but my restaurants are more like moorish food it's more like i could go there every sort of week type of thing so then it's not super high, super high end it's more approachable food and if you're sitting there with friends and you feel content and you feel at home then i think we've done done a good job if you fancy fish at a restaurant but are also mindful of food sourcing you've likely wrestled with what to order was this halibut caught in a sustainable fishery is this type of salmon suffering from overfishing Given the nature of the fishing industry, verifying the origin of seafood can be really difficult. But anyone who feasts on the buttery albacore tuna caught by the Seattle-based fishing boat St. Jude can rest easy. A respected husband and wife duo have operated this vessel for over 30 years and hold themselves to high standards of practice. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs stopped by their booth at the weekly farmer's market in Seattle's Ballard neighbourhood, where you can also find this prized Pacific tuna on several menus. Yes, sir. Yes. Thank you. $11. Uh, my name is Joe Malley. I'm the owner and operator of the St. Jude. She's a 95-foot Gulf Shrimper-style tuna troller that um, I bought in 1990 and have uh, fished hard ever since. Our chosen and derived fishery is uh, albacore tuna, which I'm very proud of because uh, having fished in Alaska in various fisheries, longlining, bottom fish, salmon trolling, and so on, all of those fisheries are somewhat problematical because of the uh, 
bycatch, the interception of other species. When we fish for albacore, the way that we fish for albacore, which is called jigging or jig fishing, it's a very clean fishery. By this I mean we don't catch really much of anything other than albacore. That's because of the water temperature zone that we, we fish in, which is from 58 to 68 degree water. It's a little too cold for the tropical species like mahi and ono. It's a little too warm for the salmon. So basically it belongs to the albacore. And in particular, it belongs to young albacore. And I say, well, who cares? But the young albacore have interesting features. First of all, they feed on anchovies, squid, and krill. Well, anchovies, squid, and krill, unfortunately for them, uh, tend to defend against predation by forming balls. They basically just coalesce into a big cloud, and for tuna, uh, I, well, I visualize the tuna as sort of cruising around beneath this cloud and saying, hey, what do you think, Benny? You feeling a little peckish? Let's go grab some anchovies. And in two seconds, they're full. You know, it's, it just takes no time for them to uh, get their bellies full. So what does that do? Well, it does a lot of things. First of all, it means that the albacore are not working for a living. So since they're not working for a living, they're kind of like me. They put on extra weight. Also, because they're feeding on anchovies, squid, and krill, these are all right at the bottom of the food chain and uh, essentially in the introductory levels of omega-3s into the oceanic food chain. So this is a great place to take your nutrition from if you're going to be a you know, a target species for a fishery like albacore is. The, the fishing method is trolling. What that means is we have 17 leaders that are attached to uh, our trolling poles and the stern of the boat, and as we drive around, we're watching the sonar, we see a school of tuna, drive that way, and throw the boat into a circle. Well, the uh, tuna are not, to be honest, they're not terribly clever, once they see the uh, jigs, they come up and sometimes they're just ravenous and they uh, bite like crazy. We've had circles where we pulled 700 fish without ever leaving the circle. These are 16-pound average fish is what we, we like best to target. Because they feed so low in the food chain, these fish are um, very low in mercury in contrast to the much larger albacore which tend to forage higher in the food chain, and therefore there's a process called biomagnification, which essentially makes um, for much higher unit introduction of uh, mercury in the forage of the fish, and therefore uh, rapid, more rapid accumulation of mercury in the fish themselves. So we're lucky. We, uh, we get high levels of omega-3, and we get low levels of mercury just because of the habits of the fish, really. What do you do with a 16-pound albacore tuna once it lands on the boat to get it uh, ready for a customer or a chef? In order to protect the sashimi quality of our, the flesh of the fish, what we do is we brain stun and bleed the fish immediately. Then we essentially allow them to bleed out for about 40 minutes on deck, rinse them, and then put them down in the fish hold. Well, the fish hold is 30 below, so now the fish is round, bled, and frozen. The boat's job with that fish is done. At this point, 
we then bring those fish to uh, offload point. Depending on our allocations and our inventory, we may um, dedicate portions of our inventory for loins, which, which is what we call our fillets of albacore. Now, this is a tricky business because if you thaw an albacore, fillet it, and then refreeze it, you no longer have a sushi-grade product. So we have to actually do the filleting via, well, using uh, band saws to do the cutting, and then uh, a, a machine that was devised by the Japanese probably 50 years ago. It's essentially like a double-ended bench grinder that enables you to mill out the uh, bloodline, the backbone, and also uh, mill off the uh, skin. So you wind up with a uh, piece of tuna that looks a lot like a walrus tusk, basically. It's uh, all white and uh, clean of bones and uh, everything that shouldn't be there. So it's essentially completely edible uh, at that point. That's for sushi-grade fillets. Uh, our other products that are important to us are canned tuna. Well, unfortunately, canned tuna in the American market has been a much abused product. We don't do that. Our purpose is to keep all the goodness inside the fish, the goodness of its flavor, the goodness of its oils and uh, omega-3s. We do what's called cold pack. What does that mean? That means we air thaw them, then fillet the fish, and cut the fillets you know, into sections that will fit the can, and then we uh, fill the can, add spices and salt, and that's it. No spring water, no vegetable broth, no, uh, nothing that doesn't need to be there. 17 a pound, so put it on the scale. And these are the medallions. The medallions are nice because they're smaller. Um, After stocking up my freezer with tuna medallions and my larder with some cans of tuna, I wanted to see how the pros work with this fresh albacore from St. Jude's Fishing Boat. So I walked a few blocks away from the farmer's market to Stoneburner Restaurant to meet one of the top Seattle chefs who is a big fan of St. Jude tuna. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Very good. Nice to see you today. I'm, I'm Jason Stoneburner. Uh, welcome to the restaurant. Uh, let's go have a seat and chat about some tuna. Great. Thanks for having me. Can I, can I get you some water, some whiskey? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's all right. I, I appreciate the offer. Um, how long have you been cooking with St. Jude tuna? So I've been using their... Their, their product or their tuna for about 20 years in Seattle. Um, previously at other restaurants where I was a line cook at and uh, at Stoneburner for uh, 10 years. Uh, and I met uh, Joyce and Joe at the Ballard Farmer's Market about 15 years ago. And that's kind of when I started, uh, uh, took a even more intense look at their product. Um, the product obviously speaks for itself. I think when you do have that, that care and that attention um, that they particularly do on their boat, whether it's uh, the soft landing mats that they use and the fishing practice that they use with, with the uh, one hook, one line, and um, the freezing technique that they use on the boat, I think 
there's a, there's only one result there, and that's high quality. How do you like to prepare it? How how have you served it in the past, or you know, is it currently on the menu? We have um, our famed smoked tuna dip, where we take these loins and we uh, brine them, smoke them, and paddle it uh, with a little bit of aioli, and then we serve that with some pickled daikon radishes and uh, some sweet potato chips. That's kind of a really fun kind of uh, shareable, you know, uh, drinking dish um, to kind of present using using their product. So a lot of the time what we do is we kind of look at those loins and treat each of those sections a little differently. So I'll use the, the, the bulk of the loin or the head of the loin uh, for some of those seared dishes, and we'll use, as you start to move back towards the tail uh, and the prize part, which is the belly, um, you have a little bit more fat and it's, um, it's a little bit more unctuous. Uh, we take those parts and we, we smoke them, so we're able to kind of use those different uh, sections of the loins uh, in various ways that complement uh, the product even further. When something presents itself like St. Jude tuna, it's it's pretty much a, a home run for me because there's very little work that I have to do. I just get this wonderful product in and try not to mess it up. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Tamsin Howard. Global wine production has fallen to its lowest level in over 60 years as a result of extreme weather events. According to the International Organization of Vine and Wine, output reached 244.1 million hectolitres, a reduction of 7% from 2022. Producers in the Southern Hemisphere have been hit the hardest, with makers in Australia, Argentina, Chile, South Africa and Brazil all seeing their yields fall between 10 and 30%. A rare first-class dinner menu from the Titanic will go on sale this weekend in an auction of memorabilia associated with the ocean liner. The water-damaged menu, which includes oysters, salmon with hollandaise sauce and Victoria pudding, is expected to fetch up to $86,000 when it hits the lots. The auction will also include hundreds of other items, such as blankets from the ship and a passenger's pocket watch. And finally, Der Horn Brewery in Leuven, Belgium, the home of Stella Artois, is celebrating its 100th anniversary this week. To kick off the festivities, the beer brand will provide a guided factory tour of the old as well as current Stella Artois breweries and host a party of 800 people this weekend. There will also be special editions of Stella Artois served in vintage glasses across 1,000 cafes and bars in Belgium. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Chiara. Thanks, Samson. You're listening to The Menu. Founded in 1988, Mildred's has been serving internationally inspired plant-based food in London for more than three decades. Although it's constantly changing its offering and expanding into other parts of the British capital, the fundamentals of the brand have remained unchanged. Mildred's looks to celebrate and pioneer vegetarian and vegan dishes whilst using the freshest ingredients. The brand has recently launched its third cookbook titled Mildred's Easy Vegan, which draws on a wealth of experience and creativity with influences drawn from across the globe. Its aim, as it says on a tin, is to make vegan cooking more approachable for home chefs. Monocle's Monica Lillis went down to the restaurant's original site in London, Soho, to speak to its co-authors, Head of Food Development, Sarah Wasserman, and Senior Food Development Chef, Alessandra Malacarne. She started by asking Sarah to explain what the new cookbook is all about. This book was really about 
okay, it's not just about where we're at as a, as a restaurant, but it's more about how we take this food and cook at home. Yeah. So it's a much more of a, like, yes, there's, there's recipes from the restaurants and there's things that we've done in specials. There's things that we cook for each other in the kitchen, like, or oh, just knock me up something. And like some of the recipes come from there, like things like the Singapore noodles or like the udon dish with the gochujang. It's, those will be things that the chefs will cook for each other when we just want to knock up a quick staff meal. But it's also what we cook at home. There's some nice recipes in there that are from Ale's home as well, because even though you don't come from a veggie vegan background, oh, yeah, yeah. there's quite a few recipes for things that just are Tuscan Italian dishes that just happen to be vegetarian or, yeah, or vegan. I think it was really important to us as well for this book that, I mean, I think what we do well is demystify vegan food and make it approachable. The restaurant, especially for Mildred's, is really about there being something for everyone. Um, and by that we mean really something from everyone in terms of like, you can come here, you can bring your kids here, you can come here for a brunch, you can come here for date night. Remember Lauren Laverne years ago called us the little black dress of restaurants because we kind of fit any occasion. And that's what we've always tried to do and we've always tried to get a good balance between things that are a little bit challenging and things that are really approachable. Um, and the book reflects that. And that's that's what really struck me with the title as well. You know, it's called Easy Vegan. Do, do you both still think that there is this kind of stigma around veganism that makes it quite difficult? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. People really, really overthink it. Yeah. When <laughs> when you go to someone's house and you and like they're like, oh, I tried to cook something vegan for you, and they like they make something like so unnecessarily complicated. It's like. If you actually just start thinking about the kinds of meals that you eat, they just are vegan because they are, right? Like you, you know, uh, like we've got a good kind of brunch spread with, with like a Turkish brunch spread, yeah, hummus and pickles and this kind of stuff, which is quite easy, but for some reason it's quite like, wow, really? This all this is vegan? Yeah, <laughs> but it's vegan by nature. I think that we don't want like, like we. We've always been the place you can take your steak-eating boyfriend yeah. to. It's It shouldn't be... Like, our favourite thing is when someone comes and eats in the restaurant and they don't even know they ate in a vegan restaurant. And that happens, like, especially because we're in London, so we get tourists that come in and have, like, you know, Korean fried chicken burger with our... Like, we've got a really amazing kind of plant-based chicken substitute products and things. And, like, they don't even know they just ate a plant-based meal. And that's a win for us because, I mean, our only... And Mildred's always been the same since I started however many years ago. Like, we never had vegetarian, vegan on the outside of the restaurant. We were just a cool little restaurant in Soho that just happened to not serve meat. The longer that, and Ali, probably you feel the same, the longer that we don't cook or work with, we don't think about it anymore. We just no, yeah. don't have eggs and cream and butter. It, we don't think about it. No. So, it... Yeah. It's amazing how much of what you naturally cook just is. As Sarah said, we don't want to convert anyone to be <laughs> vegan. We, I mean, this book is not, um, you know, if you, if you buy it, you don't have to become vegan. If, if you want, you can, but, it, <laughs> but it's more like a sort of, um, you can cook easy yeah. food that is delicious. Mm. And it just happened to be vegan, basically. It doesn't say, I mean, it, it, it's not, I don't think this is something that you need to convert to unless you want to. Yeah, absolutely. It just, it's more like you need to be aware and it's, 
and it's nice to have something that doesn't contain meat all the time because yeah. a lot of people don't understand that like more than that is like um if you eat meat every day it's not actually quite sustainable but while we have the book in front of us would we, could you talk me through some of your favorite recipes i mean my i think my favorite recipe is the crepes the chocolate one yeah, no, it's just because it reminded me when I was a little uh, kid. It wasn't vegan, but, it, you know, it, it was something like, let's make it vegan because it's so easy to make vegan. So what, do you, use, what do you use instead of egg then? Uh, nothing. You don't have to... Yeah, it, yeah, just a bit of corn flour with a plant flour, and that's it. And turmeric to give a bit of a colour, eggy colour. If you want, you can use also black salt in it, which gives the taste of egg. But it's not necessary because then when you fill it with um, chocolate or hazelnut spread or, or whatever, it, it tastes nice. There's a really quick udon, um, udon butter noodle dish with gochujang. I love that one. And that starts to finish like 10 minutes. But I'm really proud of the dessert section in the book as well. Because I think a lot of people like, are really scared by that, like doing vegan desserts. And I think it's like you said, like what where what do you sub in for the eggs like there's a lot of those recipes where I think any recipe that you see in a cookbook that's only got one egg in it you can usually just take that out and just ignore it Um, and then you just sub in like plant milks and stuff like that so the whole dessert section I'm really proud of but I really like there's a really quick cheesecake recipe so we had like this Biscoff cheesecake that was on the menu for many 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 years and, I, and it was quite a long process, it was quite a tricky thing to train in. And then we came up with a version of it that's literally got like four ingredients and takes ten minutes. And it was part of me that was like, oh, I'm really glad I developed this recipe. And part of me was like, maybe that could have been this easy <laughs> from the get-go. And I just made it really hard for the restaurant. But that's quite good because I think you can make that in... 15 to 20 minutes at home and have like a full-on vegan cheesecake without having done anything. I'm gonna ask you just a more Mildred specific question. Sure. Um, Obviously it's this Soho institution as you know, opened in 1988 I believe. Why do you think it's kind of, there's so many different restaurants in London, how do you think Mildred's has managed to achieve its almost cult-like status? So Mildred's is like I mean, for me, it's obviously, like, a huge journey. Because I was with Mildred's, like, I wasn't at the original Greek Street site, but um, but I've been with Mildred's for a really long time. And when I started here, we were known, like, we, we were pretty much the only player in town. And around this area of Soho, you get, like, all the production houses and stuff like that. So we were, we were the vegetarian restaurant in Soho. And at that point, we got everyone. I mean, we got so many celebrities. Like, it was just bonkers. We've, like... And not, like... You know, we're talking, like, Yoko Ono, not people from, like... Yeah, (laughs) like, like, you know, Paul McCartney. Like, just crazy. This place was so crazy. And Jane, the owner then, um, the founder of Mildred's, so she... Her whole thing was, like... We're just going to be this really cool little unpretentious place that just, we just don't serve meat here. The reason I think we've kind of persevered and we're still here, 
it was about being like let's be contemporary and relevant and and fun and we've we've stuck with that that's very much the ethos of the brand of the restaurant and and the menu, the menu well, yeah. but it, we haven't ever let it stop us developing and being creative like where the food has come in the last 20 years like we've constantly evolved and we if we have like a very popular dish on the menu and that starts to get copied by other brands like we will pull it and do something else because we never want to be we always want to be one step ahead thanks very much monica mildred's easy vegan is out now And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Seabird by Alessi Brothers. Thanks for listening, and until next week. There's a road I know I must go Even though I tell myself that road is closed